Please take your Bibles, turn them with me to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is going to be almost at the very end of your Bible. And uh, that's going to be 1 John chapter 3. We are continuing our journey through the epistle of 1 John. And our sermon series is called, How Can We Know? How can we know? How can, how can I know that I have eternal life? How can I know that I'm really a Christian, that I belong to God? And though John writes these letters with believers in mind, this book is also very powerful for unbelievers, in particular unbelievers who think they are believers, people who profess to believe in God, who might do some religious things, whose names might even be written on a church's membership roll and yet they don't have eternal life. So, how can we know? God's going to answer that question in a powerful way this morning through His Word. So, if you will now stand with me as we read the Scripture together, remembering and acknowledging that what we are about to hear carries the same authority as if the Lord Jesus Christ Himself were here, standing right here saying this to you, 1 John chapter 3 starting at verse 4. God says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, these are powerful words. These are hard words. And yet they're your words, and they are true words. And so, Father, I pray that your word would sink down deep into our hearts this morning that we would receive it. We would receive it for what it is, not the words of man, but the words of God. So do what a preacher cannot do, Father, which is change lives through your holy and inspired word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was, a, uh, it was a shocking moment to me when those words came out of my lips. It was dinner time, and one of my children, who will remain nameless, who was a toddler at the time, was engaged in a food battle with me. Some of you know what that's like. This child was not interested in eating a plate full of nutritious food that had been prepared. This child was not grateful for this, and no amount of pressure or cajoling or persuasion could get this child to eat. 
And in a moment of frustration, I opened my mouth and said, you need to eat this. Don't you know that there are starving kids all over the world? And the words had barely escaped my lips when I realized I sound exactly like my mother. I remember when I was a little boy and my mom would say something like that to me to try to get me to eat. And I remember as a young boy confused by that statement because I had no idea how me eating my peas would help a hungry child halfway around the world. But lo and behold, years later, as a parent, I caught myself talking like my mother. I remember another time later on where I noticed in the mirror that I had the exact same body shape as my dad. I was the same height. I had the same facial structure. I was chubby in the exact same places as he. My hair is receding in the exact same places his hair did. So I I really can't grow much of an afro these days. It's more like a half-fro. That's why I just shave it all off. I just give up. Never mind. Forget about that. Typically, in some way, shape, or form children begin to take on the characteristics of their parents. We begin in some way uh, to image our father or our mother. Now, while in the physical realm, there are all kinds of families, all kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds, and all kinds of cultures and family traditions, the Apostle John is showing us in today's passage that in the spiritual realm, there are only two families. There are only two families in the world. That's my first observation about the text that we read today. In verse 10, if you go down to to the very last verse of this section, verse 10, John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's it. There is no third family. Either God is your father or the devil is your father. That, that, is, that sounds like a very extreme statement in 21st century tolerant Western America. And it's very common for people to say that we are all God's children. The Bible says, not so. Scripture tells us in its earliest pages that there are only two groups of people in the world. And you can see this all the way back in the book of Genesis where God creates Adam and Eve, and they start out as true children of God, pure and holy, and they are perfectly reflecting the image of their father. But you know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil, the serpent, leads Adam and Eve to disobey God, and in that moment, you could say that humanity was snake bits. And the venom of sin ran deep into the heart of man. And that image of God in man was twisted and perverted so that Adam and Eve did not perfectly reflect God anymore and began to image the devil instead. And God turns to the serpent and says in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God speaks of two peoples, two families, two groups. You have on the one hand the offspring of the serpent, 
which speaks of the children of the devil. And you have, on the other hand, the offspring of the woman, which points to the people of God, which, which tells us, by the way, that despite man's rebellion, there would be offspring who would be redeemed by God. Despite mankind's defection from God, God purposed from the very beginning to bring people back into his family. He's already thinking about offspring. Every single person in this room has a spiritual father. But who is your father? Whose child are you? How can you know? In the physical realm, there are scientific paternity tests, DNA tests, where you can connect a child with her, her father. In the spiritual realm, John tells us that there are tests that will yield certain evidences that connect you with your spiritual father. It's not a blood test. It's not a genetic test. It's a spiritual test, a spiritual test. Therefore, we see that what you do with sin shows what family you belong to. We see that in verses 4 through 6 in our passage. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now verse 6 causes some folks, especially those with very tender consciences, causes some anxiety. And I can understand that. This can be very confusing. Anyone in this room, here's a question. Anyone in this room sin at least once in the past week? Anyone sin on their way to church this morning? Let's be honest. Getting out the door to worship on Sunday morning sadly seems to be a great occasion for sin for many, especially those with children. So I've sinned lately, multiple times. In fact, and this is Deemer speaking here, I feel like regularly I fail to be everything I'm supposed to be as a Christian. Do you feel that way too? Now does that mean that we've never seen him or known him if we've sinned this week? If we've sinned on our way to church? Does that mean that I'm outside of the people of God. What what is John getting at here? I think what can be helpful uh, to us in determining John's meaning is to understand what John is not saying. This is where context is so important. We have to think of the, the context of the entire book of 1 John here. John cannot mean, whatever John means, John cannot mean that true Christians never sin. Turn over to chapter 1. Chapter 1. John says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So John is telling us, that a genuine believer cannot make the claim, I have no sin. He can't claim to be perfect. And John's promise that God is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sins shows us that it is possible for real believers, real children of God, to sin. Turn to chapter 2. 
Look at verse 1. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, well, I guess that means they're a child of the devil. Is that what John says? No. He says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John wants to provide hope and comfort for Christians who have sinned. Turn to chapter 3. Look at verse 2. We read this last week. John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So believers are God's children. But at the same time, believers are not yet everything they are meant to be. So if you are in dismay this morning because you regularly fail, it's because what we will be has not yet appeared. You have not arrived yet. John says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Now that means you're not totally like Jesus yet because he hasn't appeared yet. So don't be shocked that you still fall short of perfect holiness. So if John isn't talking about sinless perfection, what is he talking about? Now I think a a close look at the wording in verse 6 helps us. John says in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That verb, keeps on sinning, is in the present tense describing an ongoing, continuous action. Or go up to verse 4, where he talks about everyone who makes a practice, a practice of sinning. What John is describing here is a person whose very lifestyle is dominated by a continuous, unbroken, ongoing, willful, blatant rebellion against God. John describes sin as lawlessness. Lawlessness is the Greek word anomian, and is connected in the Bible with Satan's rebellion against God. It has, that word has satanic associations. It has antichrist associations. Now, remember to whom John is writing. John's writing to churches that have been infiltrated by false teachers that are saying that you can live however you want to live, and the commands of God are inconsequential and irrelevant. So, sin all you want. And in chapter 2, we saw this a couple weeks ago, John calls these teachers antichrists. Now, what's interesting is that if you turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, we see the word anomian, lawlessness, show up again. And once again, we see it in association with Antichrist, where Paul writes about a, a coming figure who will set himself up against God. And in Paul's description of this individual, we get a better idea of what the spirit of lawlessness is all about. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So there's that word again, lawlessness. So what does the spirit of lawlessness look like? Verse 4, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So the idea of lawlessness is complete and total opposition to God. It's self-exaltation. And though in 2 Thessalonians this attitude is embodied in a particular individual, and in 1 John embodied in a cadre of false teachers, the whole testimony of the Bible demonstrates that the principle of lawlessness is at work throughout all mankind. Because the Bible says there is no one good, not one. Bible describes all of humanity, all the, the collective human race, standing in opposition towards God and even hating Him. We, we're all engaged in self-exaltation. We, we've all been in opposition of God. We've all been snake-bit and twisted by the serpent's venom. Now, if you balk at that, may I just ask you, what do you think sin is? Our world today totally downplays sin, jokes about sin, makes TV shows celebrating sin, makes sin out to be no big deal, makes it out to be even something that's good, and even churches have been affected by this attitude. And yet, at its heart, sin is rebellion against God. As a matter of fact, it is regarding oneself over God. Now, most people aren't as bold as this Second Thessalonians Antichrist. Most people don't consciously proclaim themselves to be God. But we don't have to. Whenever we sin, that's exactly what we're doing. God says to us, I'm God, go this way. We say, no, I'm going to go this way instead. I will determine what is right for me in this situation. I will determine what is good and what is evil. Sounds familiar? Sounds like Genesis 3. Sounds like what happened in the garden. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, thy will be done in sin We say, my will be done. We exalt our will over God's. Let's get that straight about sin. And let's not paper over it anymore and and make it seem like it's just something to laugh at and something not very serious. It is rebellion against God, and it is exalting ourself and our will over His. We've all done this, but the Apostle John says that the children of the devil make a practice of this. It is the very essence of their lifestyle. Their life is dominated by sin, dominated by rebellion. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning, 1 John 3, 4, no one who keeps on sinning, 1 John 3, 6, has either seen him or known him. So John isn't thinking about the true believer who occasionally falls into sin. For that person, there exists an advocate, John says earlier on in the book. The advocate, Jesus Christ, who stands as the propitiation for their sins. Instead, John's thinking about someone different, about a person who, like the devil, is thumbing his nose at the commands of God and with a callousness turns away from him. That's the lifestyle of the person. 
And such a person is joining with Satan and partnering with him in that lawless rebellion. Sin is a participation in what Satan is doing. Now, the false teachers John is writing against were saying that they knew God, and they were on the path to salvation and enlightenment, and yet, on the other hand, live lives of blatant sin and rebellion against God. They felt like you can embrace God and live in a consistent, unbroken pattern of lawlessness at the same time. That was an issue then. It's an issue today. You also talk to to Peter sometime about his evangelism ministry in Athens. Because he regularly encounters college students who are indulging in sin, indulging in drunkenness, indulging in sexual immorality, who are blaspheming God with their lips, and who at the same time are calling themselves Christians and think they are children of God. As a matter of fact, some of the sometimes some of the worst abuse Peter gets out there is from people who say they're Christians. There are churches and even entire denominations that have thumbed their nose about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And they've taken what God has said is evil, and they are declaring it to be something good. Or closer to home, some of you have friends and family and co-workers who may claim to know Christ. And if they live a lifestyle that is antithetical to everything Christ taught, they're not interested in following Jesus. But the Apostle John says, no one who keeps on sinning, as I've seen him or known him. No one who has really come to know God just continues on as if before, as if nothing ever really happened. The child of God turns and goes down a different path. John says no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The child of God is still vulnerable to sin, still sometimes stumbles and falls into sin. But despite his failings and struggles, the life of a child of God is characterized by an overall rejection of lawless rebellion and a desire to live for God. The child of God's life is characterized by an overall trajectory and progression towards holiness in spite of the struggles against sin. John tells us that the believer practices righteousness. I think one of the most helpful examples of this in the Bible is King David. David passionately loved God. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. He was a real child of God. He was a real believer. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible helps us to see David not as some superhuman person, but as a real flawed and broken individual who sometimes fell big time. And most of you know the stories. You know of his fall into adultery. You know of the blood that was on his hands, murder. You know of the pride that led God to discipline him. You know about David's struggles throughout his life. And yet you also know of the brokenness in his heart over his sins, and you know about his repentance. Those instances of sin in David's life, those moments of lawlessness did not continuously dominate his entire life. He says in Psalm 51, 
in response to his sin. Have mercy on me, O God. He says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. That's how a child of God responds to their sin. In Psalm 32, during another time of confession of sin, and we don't know what sin this one was for, but in Psalm 32, David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Hear the misery of David in that prayer. This is what happens to a real believer who puts off dealing with their sin. You know, the most miserable person in the world is not an unbeliever who is sinning. It's, it's a believer who is putting off dealing with their sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. God is disciplining David. And why is God disciplining him? Because David is God's child. A father only disciplines those who belong to him. And where does that discipline lead? Verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And look at David's conclusion in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Notice this. Notice this carefully. The godly person, the child of God, is not sinless. Instead, the godly person offers prayers of confession for their sin. And that brings us full circle to what John has been saying in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's writing to Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next observation about our section is that you do what your spiritual father does. Verse 7, we're back in 1 John 3 now. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Again, there's people trying to deceive these churches, trying to say that, oh, you can, you can, you know, you can be a Christian and you can have salvation and you can just live however you want. That, that's the deception that's going into these churches. John says, no, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The reason why it is inevitable that some people will practice righteousness and the reason why it is inevitable that other people will practice lawlessness is because you inevitably do whatever your father does. The ancient world probably got this in a clearer way than we do today. In the first century, if you were a son, you literally did whatever your father did. If your father was a farmer, guess what you were going to be when you grew up? A farmer. If your father was a tanner, you were going to be a tanner. If your father was a carpenter, that's exactly what you were going to be. That wasn't controversial. That was the expectation. That's the way it was then in the physical realm, and that is the way it is both then and now in the spiritual realm. You do what your father does. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And why will they be called sons of God? 
Because men and women who are peacemakers are reflecting something about the character of God who brings peace. They are looking like their father. Or consider Matthew 5, 44, where Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. When you love your enemies, you are looking like your father who loves his enemies enough to send Christ into the world to save them. If you're here this morning as a Christian, people should be able to observe your life and not see perfection, but see some sort of reflection of the very character of God. They should see love in us. They should see purity in us. They should see faithfulness in us. They should see patience in us. We should love what our Father loves and hate what our Father hates. People should see your life and be reminded of God because you are His child and you are doing what your Father does. And that might freak you out. You might be thinking, I fail here all the time. I struggle with loving people. I struggle with patience. I struggle with purity. And my response to that is, I know. I know you do. We've already discussed this. John has already discussed this. Remember what he told you in verse 2. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. John's not shocked that you struggle in these areas. You're not all the way there yet. You know why? Because you're a child. But you're his child. And if you are his child, that means you are growing and learning and stumbling and falling. But if you are a child, it means that you are growing into something very specific. You are growing bit by bit into the likeness of your father. And over time, these traits and characteristics will inevitably make themselves more evident because you will image whoever your father is. That's true if your father is God. It's true if your father is the devil. Verse 8, John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There's a reason why the lost person lives in a state of lawlessness, of rebellion against God. If somebody is rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives, if someone refuses to follow Jesus as king, if Jesus says, follow me, and your response is, nope, It's because you're following the footsteps of your father. Many people think that they can be a part of God's family and have salvation apart from receiving Jesus as both Savior and Lord. That perhaps maybe there are religious works, uh, maybe their good deeds will earn them favor with God, will buy their way into the family of God. Some people live like Even their physical family connections may somehow connect them to God. Sometimes children will try to ride off the spiritual coattails of the parents without making the faith their own. My mom's a Christian. My daddy's a believer. I grew up in the church. People may lean on some sort of generational Christian heritage and put their hope in such associations. In the Gospel of John, not 1 John that we're reading, but in his other book, the Gospel of John... 
we actually encounter a group of people who were confident that both their genetic and religious pedigree were enough to bring them into God's family. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is preaching to people who are really religious and really Jewish. And in John chapter 8, verse 30, it says that many people believed in him. And yet, and yet, as you read on, you'll see that this belief was not a saving belief. This is, a, this is an ongoing theme in the gospel of John. There's a superficial, non-salvific kind of belief. And it becomes clear in the conversation whose family these so-called believers are really a part of. So you look at John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now that sounds a lot like 1 John chapter 3, doesn't it? You're going to see a lot of, a lot of similarities here between John 8 and what we're reading in 1 John. Duh, it's the same author. So that makes sense. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's reminiscent of what John says in 1 John, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say, you will become free? Now, you need to understand. It was widely thought that being a genetic descendant of Abraham automatically qualified you to be a part of God's family. In the first century Jewish mind, to be the offspring of Abraham genetically is virtually synonymous with being a part of the offspring of God, being God's child. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Notice the language here. Very similar to 1 John chapter 3 where John talks about practicing sin. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And Jesus elaborates here and says that the practicer of sin is a slave to sin. These false believers are slaves to sin. Verse 35. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Now, Jesus here means genetically. I know, he says, that you have Jewish DNA in yourselves. I know your bloodline. Verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, okay, stop for a second here, just to avoid confusion. In verse 37, we saw Jesus calls these Jews Abraham's offspring. But now, moving forward from verse 39 on, Jesus is saying that they really aren't Abraham's offspring. No contradiction here. Jesus is on the one hand acknowledging a racial genetic descent from Abraham, verse 37. But now starting in verse 39, when he casts doubt on their Abrahamic descent, he's talking in spiritual terms. They are Abraham's offspring physically. 
There are physical offspring of Abraham, and then there are Abraham's offspring in the way that counts, spiritually, salvifically. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. See, they're really offended here. Jesus says to them, if, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Okay, so Jesus is, is saying what basically I've been saying this morning. Spiritually, you will look like your father. Now look at the response of these false believers in verse 31. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. That's probably a cheap shot there surrounding the circumstances of Jesus' birth. We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Okay, so here we go. Their claim here gets to the heart of the issue. We have one Father, even God. They believe that they are children of God. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. Let's stop again. I'm sorry, I keep stopping here. But there are just, there's some more dots to connect here. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. Jesus says a few chapters later, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Apostle John says in 1 John 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You see the connections here? What you do with Jesus... And what you do with his commands is the indicator, is the ultimate paternity test to determine who your father really is. Doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what your racial background is, doesn't matter how religious you are, what matters is what you do with Jesus and his commands. The one who has God as his father loves Jesus and keeps his commands. That's the test. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If Jesus is the perfect image of the Father, then your response to Jesus reveals your true relationship to God. Back in verse 42. If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Ultimately, these people, in spite of their traditions, in spite of all their religiosity, in spite of their rich family heritage, are exposed as children of the devil. They are exposed as the offspring, not of Abraham, but of the serpent. But, lest we look down, on religious hypocrites and self-deceived people, let's remember again that everyone comes into the world in the exact same condition as those false believers that Jesus argued with. The image of God in all of us has been twisted by sin, and we, we all start out trapped in the devil's household. And no amount of works and no amount of religiosity and effort on the part of man can break us out of the devil's house. Satan does not let go of his children very easily. And the way out of the devil's dark family is not through escaping by your own hand, but through rescue at the hand of another. And therefore we see 
back in 1 John chapter 3, that Jesus rescues his people through taking away sins and destroying the works of the devil. So we're back in 1 John 3 now. Verse 5, John says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. If you want a, you want a verse to summarize Christmas, verse 5 is a good one here. Jesus came to deal with our biggest problem, which is sin. Adam was snake bit in Genesis chapter 3, and the venom of sin twisted his heart. And one who wants perfectly image God the Father began to image his new father, the devil. And the venom of sin has been passed down from Adam to all of his descendants, including us. And the wages of sin, God says, is death. And the climactic expression of death is eternal hell. That's the consequence of our sin. And God would have every right to let every one of us succumb to the venom of sin. And yet God was not satisfied to see all of his creation tarnished and twisted. He is a father after all, which means he wants children. Lots of them. And the father sent Christ into the world. And he became a human being. The second Adam. And he did what Adam could not do. He perfectly imaged the Father and did not give in to the devil's temptations. And he came into the world to be a new human representative, superior to Adam, a better Adam. Look at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And you know what's interesting? God actually tells the devil in advance that he will be defeated. He tells the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says an offspring of Eve will one day come and while the serpent will bruise this offspring, the serpent's own head would be crushed in the process. Jesus, the Son of God, The offspring of the woman appeared. He came into the world with an antidote to the venom of sin. And the antidote was his blood. Author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ, on the cross, became the substitute for sinners. He, he became bruised and snake-bit for us. The Bible says that for our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. And as the sin of the world was transferred from sinners to Jesus, Jesus suffered the full force of God's holy wrath. And why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now all who put their trust in Christ's death, though formally guilty, are now legally declared righteous in God's courtroom because Jesus has paid their penalty. This is how Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. This is how the work of the devil is destroyed by Christ. This is how Jesus shattered the gates to the devil's household and released the captives. And whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. But God doesn't just want forgiven people. He wants holy people. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, And he died for all, 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so the question, and we're on the home stretch here, is how can people who by nature hate God and who by nature practice lawlessness, who are born rebellious sinners, how can such people no longer live for themselves but for Christ? How does that happen? It happens by God causing people to be born anew, born again. Look at verse 9. John says that the child of God cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're here this morning as a Christian, you need to know you aren't a Christian because you did something. You, You are a Christian because something was done to you. Something happened to you. You were born again, born of God, and you cannot help but be like the one you were born to. Consider what an amazing thing that God has done. God created man. Man fell into sin. God's image in man was marred. Jesus pays the penalty for man's sin. And since the price is paid, God, instead of casting the sinner into hell, saves him through recreation. That's why the Scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Man is not saved because he does good works. That's impossible. Instead, man does good works because he is saved, because he's a new creation. Charles Spurgeon says, although works do not justify a man before God, they do justify a man's profession before his fellows. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone, you must bank your hope on Christ's work, not on your own work. But nevertheless, if you have trusted in Christ alone, if you have been brought into God's family, there will be a difference in your life. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would encourage you by showing you those areas of your life where indeed you have changed and where you are more and more reflecting Your Father, if you're here this morning as a believer, there are areas. But sometimes we get so frustrated and discouraged by our own sin, that's that's all we can see. And yet I want God to grace you this morning by showing you, yes, you are different. There has been changes. You aren't exactly what you were when you first got saved. You aren't what you were when you were lost. I pray that God would help you to see that this morning. But at the same time, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you of those areas that you still fall short. Every single child of God in this room has areas in their lives where they struggle to reflect the character of God. Lord knows I, <laughs> that describes me. So many areas, so, many, so much renovation that has yet to happen in my heart that I am so begging for God to do. May God stir up within us a firm conviction to move in a direction that better reflects the Father that we so love. Paul says in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And finally, there may be others here that upon hearing this message realize that they've never been a child of God. 
maybe as you honestly examine your life, you come to realize that you never truly submitted to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you gave Him lip service. Maybe you did some religious things here and there. Maybe you go to church. But you realize you've never truly bent the knee to Christ as King. The good news is that there is hope for all who call on the name of the Lord. Being a part of God's family is not complicated. It's rather simple. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Will you receive Jesus? Will you believe in His name? If so, if the answer is yes, guess what? You too are now a child of God. Welcome to the family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would redeem the the poor preaching and that whatever was said here this morning that is good and true and helpful, that those things would be burned into the minds and hearts of my friends here. And those things that were said that were distracting, not significant, not consequential, or even wrong, that you would strike those things from our hearts and minds and help us to focus on those things that are good. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your patience. And thank you that you are a father who is bringing new children into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.